be standing, I'm going to read our sermon text this morning. It comes from Mark chapter 14, and it is 32 through 42. Let's look at it together. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. You may be seated. Thank you, Seth, very much for reading that for us. And will you bow with me, please? Father, we are grateful that we have your word. Lord, I pray that you would, of course, please quicken our hearts. Lord, cause them to live and those that don't know you. And Lord, those of us that do know you, Lord, I pray that you would cause our hearts to be drawn ever closer to you through your word. Lord, we know that it's through your word that you speak to us and draw us and help us. So, Father, I pray, please, do this again. Lord, cause your word, of course, to be our food, our very nourishment that it truly is. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let me welcome you again to Christ's Fellowship this morning. So thankful that you're here. Really thankful. Mark 14, 32 through 42, I've titled the sermon this morning, Why So Serious? Why so serious. What makes one Christian more devoted than another? What makes one follower of Jesus more serious about following Jesus than another? What makes one more faithful than another? Because there are levels of seriousness and levels of faithfulness and levels of devotedness among Christians, yes, Though all devoted, though all serious, though all faithful. Now, really, there are some factors that factor into that, and I understand that. Like, for example, how long someone's been in the faith. That makes a difference. How dramatic, how dramatic rather, the, the transformation for, for someone may have been. That can make a difference as well. And then also, maybe the support system that a Christian has around him. If he's, if he's alone in his faith for a year or two, might be very different from someone who's saved among a very good support system where other brothers and sisters are around this person helping him or her and saying, hey, come along with us, do this with us, come to this Bible study, let us help you, let me sit down with you, beside you, and help you 
learn. All of these things, of course, can factor into that. But all those things, I think, are just around something else. I think ultimately the underlying answer is this. Isn't the answer really this? The degree to which he believes and adheres to the word of God. I mean, isn't that really, I think, what makes someone more serious than someone else, more devoted than someone else, more passionate than someone else is how serious do you really take all of these words and adhere to them? Isn't that really the difference? If what this book says, for example, about me is true, then it would make me want to pray more earnestly for greater humility, and it would make me want to pray more earnestly for more grace. Because if what this book says about me is true, I need more humility, and I need more grace. If what this book says about God is true, then I would want to love him more and walk in greater obedience to him, because according to this book, that's how I draw closer to him. And if what this book says about him is true, then I definitely want to be closer to him. That's the best place to be. And what the Bible says about the, word, the, the world and the flesh and the devil is true as well, then, of course, I would want to take up the full armor of God to fight against their temptations and their empty promises and their subtle deceptions, right? And so your belief that God's words are truly God's words makes all the difference, and it's also a difference that can be seen in you, can't it? I mean, think about, think about a truly devoted Christian that you know, or maybe that's multiple people, and maybe it's a couple. I've got a couple in my mind right now, truly devoted Christians. What's true about all those people? They love the Word of God. They love it and center their lives all around it. Well, we can think of one who took the Lord's words most serious. That's the man, Jesus Christ himself. He believed his Father's word and therefore lived in perfect submission to that word. Did he not? So when we get to verse 32 here in our text, and by the way, those of you who are visiting, we just walk through a whole book of the Bible, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, and so we find ourselves here this morning. And it starts off, our paragraph this morning starts out, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. What is that? It was a garden at the foot of the Mount of Olives. Butch and Pam, you've been there, yes? It's this garden at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And it's interesting that we find Jesus in a garden at the beginning of this very historic moment in his life and a historic moment for all of human history. We find him at the beginning of it here in a garden. And it's interesting because don't we find also that the biblical narrative, the whole biblical narrative begins us in a garden too, doesn't it? Originally, there was one man, Adam, and he enjoyed a happy and holy relationship with the Father in the Garden of Eden. Though it was temporary, that happy and holy relationship. Here we find Jesus in a garden in a happy and holy union 
with the Father. That is not a temporary one. It has existed from all eternity past for billions of years before there were even years. You know, don't you, that the Lord God exists outside of time. He's not limited by time. He actually created time. And though he exists outside of it, he also can exist in it with us too. How can that be? But we know this garden that Jesus is in this morning is, of course, very different from the Garden of Eden. We know sin entered the world and damaged that relationship between God and man. It even damaged the landscape of the world itself. It's under a curse now, producing thorns and thistles. Sin is actually the very reason why Jesus is even in this garden right now. He wouldn't be in this garden if it wasn't for sin that happened in the original garden, right? He was there to bear the sins of many. He was there to reconcile God to man. A reconciliation was needed because of all the transgressions that mankind has hurled in the face of his God, the first of which happened in the Garden of Eden. That original sin brought trouble and pain and death. All the trouble, pain, and death that you've ever experienced in your life is a result of that first original sin. And so we find Jesus here at this point. Look at the rest of verse 32 and verse 33. Jesus says to them, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Jesus is greatly distressed and troubled. And we know the origin of that trouble. We just mentioned it. It was sin that has come into the world is why he's even troubled at all. And he tells all of his followers to sit here in one place, but then he takes three others, Peter, James, and John. You know there's an, an inner circle even among the 12. There's this inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And he, he, he walks with them a bit closer brings them a bit closer to where he's going to be ending up. But he brings them in a little farther and tells them, you stay here, and he goes in alone, and he tells his followers to sit in one place, takes the three. And the closer he gets to the place where he would be pouring out his soul in prayer, the more distressed he's getting. Every step he's taking closer to that spot where, he'll, where he will be praying, the more Distressed, troubled, bothered, he becomes. What was the nature of Jesus' distress? Where was it coming from? Let's look at verses 34 through 36. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful. How sorrowful, Jesus, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed. If it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. 
Let me read to you something from uh, James Edwards. He's a New Testament professor. He said this, quote, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That echoes the haunting lament of the downcast and dejected soul of Psalm 42.6 and Psalm 43.5. Yet, he says, Nothing in all the Bible compares to Jesus' agony and anguish in Gethsemane. Neither the laments of the Psalms nor the broken heart of Abraham as he prepared to sacrifice his son Isaac, nor David's grief at the death of his son Absalom. You might remember David crying out, Absalom, Absalom, oh my son, Absalom. And he says, not even close. None of the heart-wrenching that we've ever read about in the Bible up to this point even comes close. There's a huge gulf between the heartache and troubled souls of men over here and the heartache and troubled soul of the Christ that's happening right here. The chasm is so wide. Let's talk about that. First of all, we know that this garden, of course, is continuing to be different from the Garden of Eden too because we know when sin entered the world in the first garden, it damaged this relationship between God and man. It even damaged the landscape, like I said before. But the, the comparisons are going to continue. Let me actually put those off. The, those comparisons are going to continue, and we'll come back to those in a second. But let me, let me first focus on this. He is, it's hard to even put into words exactly what's going on in the mind of Christ right now, because you've got to know that he's never experienced a separation. He's never experienced a sideways look. He's never experienced any displeasure from his father ever for, from eternity past. And so what's actually troubling his soul? It's troubling him so much so that it affects his posture, first of all. Did you see that? We'll get back to what's troubling his soul so much. But did you notice the posture of Jesus Christ? Well, let's, let's not just run over this real quickly. Verse 35, it says he fell on the ground. The weight of what was about to take place, it, it physically affected him. Have any of you experienced something that was just so grieving to you that it took the strength from your legs. I mean, he was literally weak in the knees. He fell down. I've experienced something like that only once. It was just so, such a punch to my soul that I just fell down. His hands, his elbows, his knees are in the dirt at this point. You just have to picture this. He's just can't stand up anymore. And his face is to the ground and he's crying out in prayer. And you need to know these words that he says would not have been composed. They would have been more of a groan more than likely. This weight of soul that he's experiencing, first of all, we can't even begin to imagine what it was like, but this weight of soul wouldn't have been projected in normal 
articulated voice tones like I'm doing, it would have been gut-wrenching prayer. If you walked up and had seen him, you would observe such a distressed man. You would say, what is wrong with him? But this distressed man was more than likely groaning out these words instead of just speaking them. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. He says, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. We've not yet seen Jesus in a state like this. In the biblical narrative, as we've been walking up to it, we've not seen him in a state like this yet, nor have we heard request come from his mouth like this, have we? Jesus is asking if it's possible for an alteration to the plans. Lord, is there anything that can be changed? Can something be changed? Everything's possible for you, Father. What plans? What plans were asking to be altered? Well, the plans of the cup. Remove this cup from me. What's he talking about? A cup. What's he mean? Well, this, this cup reference comes from three Old Testament references. There's actually three different times where this cup is mentioned in the Old Testament. Let me read to you Isaiah 51, 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Then a few verses later. Thus says your Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of his people, behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink of it no more. And then Jeremiah twenty-five fifteen. thus The Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand the cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. This cup is the cup of God's wrath. Just like the prophets were told, my people are going to drink this because of their sinfulness, because they've chosen to ignore again and again and again all the gracious warnings that I gave them for hundreds of years now the cup of my wrath is coming upon them. I've been patient with them. I've been so patient with them. I've sent them prophet after prophet after prophet, and they've ignored them all. And he says, I'll give them, I'll give them finally what they deserve then, what they've almost asked for by their sinfulness, the cup of my wrath, and they'll drink it down to the dregs. They will get my punishment. So this, this reference, Jesus is referring to the cup of the wrath of God. That he must drink down to the very last drop. He's referring to taking the wrath of Almighty God on himself. That's what he's talking about when he says this cup. And I, I don't want you to misunderstand this, okay? Because in, very, in a lot of movies and even in a lot of songs, there's a lot of emphasis put on the crown of thorns and the lashings and the nails. And listen, I'm not underestimating those things at all. Okay, um, those were bad to be sure. But Jesus Christ wasn't so concerned about thorns 
and lashes and nails. There was something behind them. Spiritually, behind the scenes of his crucifixion was the God of the universe pouring out all his wrath, vengeance, anger, and hatred of sin upon one man. He localized in one place, in one point of time, on one man, the man Jesus Christ, all of his wrath for all the sins of everyone who would ever believe. And it was equal to an eternity in hell for each one of them. We can't even begin to pretend we understand what that actually looked like in the spiritual realm and what it would have felt like to Jesus Christ who had never known sin and had never known anything but perfect unity with his follower. I mean, with his father, rather. Because, listen, we've got, we've got in Jesus, what do we have in Jesus Christ? We, we've got this man, this holy perfectly, purely good God-man who would suffer as if he was the most vile, disgusting, wretchedly cursed demon of hell. See the huge contrast there, right? Perfectly beautiful, glorious, worthy man who gets treated as if he is the most wretched, vile demon from the pits of hell. That's what's coming to Jesus, and he knows it. So we begin to understand a little bit better now why the strength was leaving Jesus' legs as he prayed, and why Luke records his sweat was dripping off of his brow in huge drops. He was physically affected in his being because he knew exactly what was coming. So we understand that he would have probably been groaning out this prayer. We understand that he's, why he's asking now, is there any other possible way for this to happen besides that cup? But then we see something so, so beautiful from Jesus. When you read it with all that understanding, you just, if you love Jesus already, you love him more when you read this. What do we read at the end of verse 36? Yet, not what I will, but what you will. What a beautifully obedient son. As we talked about in the introduction, here's a man who takes the word of God seriously, doesn't he? Look how seriously Jesus is taking the word of God. He knows that whatever God's will is, that it's to be followed, it's to be trusted, it's to be obeyed. Because there's a good 
loving, faithful follower, I mean, father behind those words, those words are true, then anything he wants is very good. Because he can only do things that are very good. And we see Jesus saying, I'll go through all of that because I trust you. So, taking us back to the garden narrative, as I said, we'd come back earlier because there's some more connections there. Remember after Adam and Eve sinned for the very first time in their existence, remember after that, when they heard the sound of the Lord coming, what's it say about them? It says they hid. They hid from him. This, this voice, this presence that had only ever brought them joy, They'd only ever known joy in the presence of God. Now, after they sinned, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they said, let's hide. Let's get away from him. Let's separate ourselves from him. The Genesis narrative actually says that they were afraid. It uses that word, afraid, when they heard him coming afraid to be in God's presence. But here in this garden, what do we see with Jesus? What do we see in the second Adam? Not afraid to be in God's presence, but afraid to be separated from God's presence. That's what he's afraid of. I don't want to be away from you and all your goodness that I've only ever experienced with you you from all eternity past. I don't want that to end. I don't want the separation from all that. I don't want it, Lord. Jesus isn't hiding from God's goodness. He's afraid to be hidden from God's goodness. Do you see that? He's not like Adam and Eve. Let's let's hide from God's goodness. He says, I'm afraid to be hidden from your goodness, Lord. Adam and Eve were afraid because everything had changed with them because of their disobedience. Everything changed after their disobedience. But Jesus is afraid because nothing had changed with him and his obedience. Nothing. He was perfectly obedient. He was still, and always would be, perfectly obedient. But he was about to suffer as if he was the most disobedient. But he was willing. Why? Because he believed the Father. He believed all these words, and took them so serious. You might walk up on Jesus at that moment, on the ground, sweating, groaning, and say, why so serious? Because these words are true. Because my father is who he says he is. That's why it's so serious. I understand what his wrath is. And understand it will all be localized on me. That's why it's so serious. Look at verses 37 and 38. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So also, just like in the Garden of Eden, 
Temptation was present in this garden too, wasn't it? Temptation was there. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. In so many words, Jesus was probably saying, because notice right here, he's, he singles out Simon. Did you notice that? Simon Peter. And he says, Simon, are you asleep? Why? Why the singling out? Well, let's not forget the context. Remember, context is king. Let's not forget the context. What had just happened? What conversation had Jesus just had with Peter? Jesus' thoughts at this point, Jesus' words at this point were, were conveying this. Peter, don't you, don't you remember the conversation we just had where I, I just told you that three times you're going to deny that you even know me? Remember that conversation that we had? Your, your proper response to that, Peter, would, would, would be prayer, prayer for strength, prayer that, that that wouldn't be true for you. Remember in the upper room, 12 of you, I told all of you, one of you will betray me. Remember us talking about that? Your proper response would, would be prayer. You followers of mine, prayer that that's not you. Because it could be. Shouldn't you instead be praying that it's not you praying for strength. Lord, please don't let me deny him. Please don't let me betray him. He's bewildered. You couldn't watch and pray with me one hour. You see, and again, we see the contrast, don't we, of someone who takes the word of God very seriously and then others who are not taking Jesus' words very seriously. He's perplexed. This is what made the difference between the Lord's fervent prayers and the disciples' lack of prayer, how seriously they were taking the word of God. How serious do you take God's words? I mean, really, like, do you take them seriously? Here's the thing. We don't have to guess. We don't have to guess how seriously we take them or not. We don't have to say, uh, I mean, maybe I do. I, I, I don't know. I have no clue how seriously I take your words. We do know. It's very easy to tell how seriously you take the words of God. It's evident as to how you live your day-to-day life, isn't it? How seriously you and I take the word of God. What is there, let me ask you this, what is there right now in your life that's contrary to the word of God that you're not taking seriously enough? What is it? Let me ask it again. What is there in your life right now that's contrary to the word of God that you're not taking seriously enough that the word of God takes very seriously? There's something in all of our lives that the Lord is pointing at, that the Lord's saying, no more of that. No more of that. Pray. Pray. Be diligent in your prayer. Fight that. Fight it hard. I will help you. I'm here to help you. I want you to ask me for help. That's how I operate. You, you get the help and I get the glory. Because you ask for help, I give you the help, and you say, thank you for the help. And I say, you're welcome. I love you, and I want to help you. And God will help you. Ask him for help for that thing that he's pointing at, that the word of God points at, that's contrary in your life, say, Father, please help me with this. Verses 39 through 42. And again, 
He went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The text makes clear, having prayed this way to the Father three different times, the issue between the Son's desire and the Father's will was now settled. He went back three different times, three total times rather, and prayed those same prayers, and then he comes back. And we learn, however, before he goes back, listen to this, this is not in Mark's narrative, but it's in Luke's. We read from Luke twenty-two forty-three that the father was listening to every word and that he would not leave his son without help. It says in Luke twenty-two forty-three, there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. He got to the end of those prayers, totally wiped out, totally ripped in his soul, and the father said, I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you. I'm not, I'm not going to leave you alone. I see all that you're going through, and I love you so much. And he sends an angel to strengthen him. What help did he receive from this angel besides strength? I think this, because we read in Hebrews 12, 2. We read this in Hebrews 12, 2. Listen, it says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. What help did he receive from the angel? I think the father must have strengthened him by giving him a glimpse of what was on the other side of the suffering. And what was it? Eternal joy at the right hand of the Father forever and ever and ever for 20 trillion years, which was just the first drop in the bucket. Eternal joy. That's why it says in Hebrews 12 too, for the joy set before him, he was able to look at all the cross and all that that entailed. He said, it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. He said, I, I can make it through that can make it through that. Thank you, Father. I see it. I see the joy. Thank you. And it was enough. It was enough. He comes back to them and says, it's enough. I think he not only means it's enough, we're done here, things are changing, but I think he was referring to, I have enough now. I have what I need now. The Father strengthened me. I poured out my soul. The plans were not going to be changed. What the Father is going to give me is enough. He was strengthened. And listen, church, as you cry out in prayer for help too, whatever the Father's pointing at in your life, whatever you're not taking seriously, what the Father gives you to overcome that is also going to be enough for you. Do you know how you get that heavenly glimpse? That helps you through it, the Word of God. If you're wondering why you're not closer with 
the Lord. If you're wondering why there seems to be a lull in your relationship with God right now, if you're wondering why it's just not as close with the Father as it once was, if you're wondering why there's maybe not as much light as there used to be, if you're wondering why it just seems foggy, you're having trouble thinking rightly about life anymore and just things seem gray and not black and white like they used to be, if you're wondering why that is, let me tell you, more than likely, it's because you've not exposed yourself as often enough and as seriously enough to the Word of God. It shines light. It clears everything up, and it gives you strength. Recently, I was praying about something. I saw something in me I didn't like. A hardness of heart. Just, it was there. I didn't like it. The tenderness should have been there. And I recognized it for what it was, and I admitted it to the Lord, and I confessed it. It shouldn't be this way. I shouldn't have a hard heart. Father, forgive me. Help me, please. Help me with this. I I know I need a balance here. And the next morning, I was in my old recliner that's showing its age, and I should probably get rid of it soon, but it still works. But I was in my recliner, and I was reading, and the Lord softened my heart. And tears came to my eyes. And I was so thankful. But you know when it came? When I was in the Word of God. Reading. Taking the Word seriously. Letting them have an effect on me. That's when it came. That's when it came. You've heard, you know, prayers, us talking to God. It is. The Bible is how God speaks to you. It is. I know a lot of people, you know, I just wish, I just wish God would speak to me. Are you reading your Bible? No. I think we have diagnosed the problem. (laughs) And that's not me shaming you, saying, you should read your Bible more, because we've all sat under sermons like that, and I don't like them either. You should do this, you should do that, you should do this, you're a big fat loser. And I'm like, I I know this. You're not telling me anything I don't know. I I just need help. That's why I came in this building. Not for you to tell me things I already know about myself. I know I'm a loser. That's why I always point you to the winner. That's why I'm so persistent in pointing you to Jesus to help you and to encourage you. And I lump myself in with you all the time, don't I? You know why? Because I love you. And for me to do the most loving thing for you would to be to point you to the very best person I know, which is Jesus Christ. What the Father gave him was enough for him. And the hour had come for Jesus for all the events to begin to unfold and to begin to happen to Jesus. Because they began at this point with his betrayal, which was at hand in the very next moment, which we're going to see next week. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the fact that you not only sustained your son with the truth, but you sustain us. We're so grateful for the fact that he took the punishment for sinners. He went to the cross. He drank that cup to the very drop, and he died. And he rose again the third day, proving that the debt was paid proving that he is who he says he is and proving that you were pleased with his 
sacrifice. And so because of that, mankind can be saved through repentance and faith in your word, which we take so seriously. And we pray all this in his perfect name. Amen.